The Dow and S&P 500 hit record closes. Jobless claims continue to extend gains. Janet Yellen urges Congress to raise the debt ceiling by August 2nd. Snapchat, Twitter, and American Express earnings skyrocket. Jeff Bezos makes it to space as people demand higher wealth taxes on the rich. This is the Freedom Dividend. So I want to start by going over the recovery in U.S. indices on the later half of the week. The, U- the U.S. indices were incredibly strong, and what a difference a few days makes. In the recording of my last podcast earlier in the week, we had gone over the weakness in the U.S. indices. The Dow had dropped over 900 points intraday earlier in the week, and it closed at over a 700-point loss. Well, today the Dow closed over 35,000 for the first time in history. The S&P closed over 4,400 for the first time in history. The NASDAQ was up more than 1% today, and it's continuing to approach record high levels. The Russell 2000 also closed above 2,200 today, and it continues its gain back from its 10% decline earlier in the month. But U.S. equities continue their outperformance of the overall markets globally. Uh, If we compare the performance of the S&P 500 index, SPY, SPY was up 3% on the week, and it's up currently 17% year-to-date. And remember, we're just a little bit more than halfway through the year, so the S&P 500 is on pace for an over 30% gain on the year, which is an incredible gain, especially comparing it to any time throughout U.S. history. But look at the different broader markets. If you look at the indices, the ETFs, EEM and IEMG, which are the core emerging market ETFs from iShares. EEM was down 1.4% today, huge decline, 0.45% on the week, and it's down 4% in the last month. Similarly, IEMG, that ETF was down 1.35% today, 0.28% on the week, and 3.78% on the month. So the overall markets globally continue to lag behind the U.S. economy. Now, if we look at the Nikkei 225 index, which is the Japanese stock market, their year-to-date performance is a measly 0.38%. And if you look at the Shanghai Stock Exchange, their performance year-to-date is just a 2.23% increase. Again, compared to the S&P 500, which is already up 17% for the year and continues to climb each and every day. But if you look at the U.S. economy versus the Japanese economy, or more particularly the Chinese economy, what is the difference in our economies, right? The Chinese economy is much more productive than the American economy. As I've gone over plenty of times in this podcast, China continues to run huge trade surpluses month after month, whereas the United States continues to run huge trade deficits month after month, showing that we are an unproductive economy and China is a very productive economy. The difference maker here is that the American economy still has the Federal Reserve able to continue to run the printing press. And so we're able to flood the economy with all this money, which then makes its way into the stock market, and which is also used to buy consumer goods that are being imported from China. 
right? And that is making our stock market go up artificially. So even though we have a poor overall economy, as ex exposed by our growing twin deficits, the trade deficits and the budget deficit for Congress, we continue to show that we are an unproductive economy and China continues to show how productive they are. Yet, if you look at each stock market comparatively, the US is continuing to completely outperform at an unbelievable pace, showing you that our stock market continues to go higher and higher into bubble territory. But the, if, if you just look at the twin deficits here, right, our budget deficits from Congress, Congress continue to skyrocket. The trade deficits continue to skyrocket as millions and millions of Americans remain out of the workforce, not producing any goods or services to go around in the economy. And so we have to borrow money to buy products that get imported from China. And yet we continue to experience huge stock market growth when China's stock market continues to be stagnant, and it shows you how much of a bubble we are in and how much the U.S. economy is benefiting in the short term from all of this money printing. The problem is, once the Chinese stop importing their goods to the United States and decide to import their goods elsewhere or consume the goods themselves, they are going to start to have a huge stock market boom. And the stock market in the United States, in real terms, is going to decline dramatically. Anyway, earlier in the week, we got the jobless claims again, and there was actually a huge beat. The expectation was 350,000 jobs, uh, jobless claims, initial claims. And instead, we got 419,000 initial jobless claims. So these are, again, workers that are getting out of the workforce now and filing for unemployment for the first time. 419,000 Americans filing for unemployment when we have 9.1 million job openings in the economy. What does this show you? It shows you, A, that because of the extended unemployment benefits that continue to go out in the economy, people that are losing their jobs do not want to go find another job. And it's also telling you that inflation is not transitory. Why do I say this? Because as we have 9.1 million job openings, even if the extended employment runs out by September, the fact that people are not taking jobs now shows you that there is a mismatch between job openings and skills from unemployed workers in the economy. As I keep referencing, most people that are losing their jobs are not able to find a similar job within the workforce. And so they're not able to return to the workforce which means that if the unemployment benefits do not get extended past September, that we are going to have tons of people who are going to be without incomes, which means that Congress is likely going to extend these benefits, at least in some way, shape or form, which is going to require more money printing, going to require the Fed to ramp up the printing press again to buy more U.S. treasuries, which is going to create even more inflation. But this should show you inflation is not transitory because the problems we're having in the labor markets are not transitory either, right? And the other piece of that, as I've mentioned before, despite what the typical Keynesian economist says, unemployment is inflationary. Keynesians believe that if people are unemployed, that is a deflationary force because since people are not earning money, they will not go out in the economy and spend. 
However, this doesn't take into account the fact that people are getting income from the government instead of from a source of employment. But also, remember, when people go to work, they help to provide goods and services in the economy. So the less people you have working in the economy, the less goods and services there are to go around for everybody else. And so therefore, prices have to go up due to supply and demand. Right now, one way we've been able to avoid this so far in America is we just import all the products we want from China and borrow money from them in order to buy them. But again, once that stops, once the Chinese stop trading with us because they realize we're giving them worthless pieces of paper in U.S. Treasury bills, then there's going to be a huge lack of supply, even more so than what we have now. And inflation is going to continue to rise. But these are all inflationary pressures that are going on in the economy. And yet everyone is fooled thinking these are deflationary pressures that are going to somehow end all of these rising prices that we're seeing in the CPI month after month for the past six months. Also with the jobs report, we had continuing claims declined by only 29,000. So people that were already collecting unemployment stopped collecting claims only 29,000 of them. There are still 3.24 million Americans that just left the unemployment benefits. Now, that is very small percentage compared to how many jobs are open in the economy. And again, this exposes the idea that in September, all of these people are going to magically re-enter the workforce. That's not going to happen because most of the people that are unemployed do not have the same skills that are required to fill a lot of the jobs that are available, right? So there are a lot of problems still in the labor market. Again, we get another week where jobless claims beat expectations, but even the expectations are high. A 350,000 expected jobless claims number, that is a huge expectation to begin with, and that didn't even come close to predicting the actual jobless claims of 419,000. So our economy continues to be extremely weak as stock prices continue to reach sky high valuations in America, yet be completely depressed all over the rest of the world, even though the United States economy is the weakest economy in the world. And again, the only reason we have any growth is because of the consumer's ability and the government's ability to continue to borrow more and more money, go into higher, higher amounts of debt and spend in the economy, but we produce nothing and we're not productive at all. And this is going to come back to haunt us in the very near future because we have been an unproductive country for a very long period of time. Anyway, that brings me to the comments that came out from the US Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen over the week, who urged Congress to raise the debt ceiling by August 2nd. And she said if the debt ceiling was not raised by August 2nd, the U.S. government is going to have an extremely difficult time meeting its debt obligations and that she would have to take extreme measures in order for the U.S. government not to default on its debt. Now, the idea of a debt ceiling is completely ridiculous because every time we hit the debt ceiling, Congress votes to either suspend the debt ceiling altogether, like what we did when COVID started, or just raise it higher. Now, the government right now 
for every $2 that the government is spending in the economy, they are collecting $1 in tax revenue. Now, let's equate this to a household. Imagine a household that brings in $50,000 a year annual income, yet spends $100,000 a year on their living. Clearly, that's not sustainable, right? That is a family that lives way above their means, and that can only go on for so long. At some point at that rate, that family is going to go bankrupt, and they're going to have to default on all of their debts because they're accruing so much debt that they don't have the ability to pay back if their income stays the same or only rises slightly. Well, that's what the U.S. government is doing now. They take in $1 of tax revenue and they spend $2 on government spending for all the different government programs, all the military spending, Social Security, Medicaid, unemployment benefits, uh, you know, all the all sorts of benefits that are being sent out in the economy, right? The infrastructure bill that's coming up. All this spending is unsustainable. And the problem is, is we created a debt ceiling in the early 1900s to try and rein in the spending from Congress to make sure that we would never run debts that could never be repaid. The problem is every time we reach the limit on that debt ceiling, Congress votes to then re-raise the debt ceiling even higher. So in other words, we might as well not even have a debt ceiling because every time we reach the debt limit, we just raise it. So it's like having a credit card with a credit limit on it of $10,000. And then when you spend $10,000 on the credit card, you call your bank and ask them to extend the credit limit to 20,000. And then you go and put $20,000 on the credit card. And then you call the bank and ask them to extend it to 30,000. Well, what's the point of having a credit limit if every time you reach that limit, you just raise it further and further? Now, it's actually a bipartisan agreement between both the Democrats and the Republicans that we need to raise the debt ceiling because if we don't raise the debt ceiling, the U.S. will default on its loans. Well, yes, obviously we will. But the problem is that's the best choice because if we continue to raise the debt ceiling, right, if we can't repay our debts now, yet we continue to raise the debt ceiling and take on more debt, there is no way we can repay our debts in the future. It is just delaying the day of reckoning where we have to come to terms with the debt and either default on it or print trillions and trillions of dollars and create hyperinflation to inflate the debt away. Now, either scenario is a bad scenario, but we have left the point of no return here because we have been extending the debt ceiling for so long. The problem is nobody in Congress wants that day of reckoning to happen while they are in office, because if it happens while they are in office, that means they are not getting reelected. So the idea is to keep pushing the problem further and further down the road and hope that by the time the problem hits, you are no longer in office. And so it's no longer your problem, your responsibility, and it's no longer blamed on you. But by definition, if we raise the debt ceiling, that means we are eventually going to default on those loans. The problem is, is every time we raise the debt ceiling, it means that the defaults will be worse. Right. If you have a credit card bill 
maxed out at $100,000 and your decision to deal with that is to go take out a credit card with another credit card company and run debt up on that credit card, it just means that once you default, you're going to be defaulting on a, a larger amount of debt. But it doesn't mean that you're not going to default just because you found a way to spend more money in the short term. But again, this is bipartisan here. Nobody wants to suspend to uh, stop suspending or raising the debt ceiling in Congress, right? Because they don't want to come to terms with the fact that they can't afford any of the government spending that's going on. And nobody cares about all of this spending. But again, we're only collecting $1 in tax revenue for every $2 being spent by the federal government. And this is unsustainable. But this is so unsustainable, we're getting to the point where this is all going to blow up in our faces because we can't continue this trend for much longer. This is, is going to end very badly very soon. And again, I'm not sure when that is, but pretty soon we are going to have a sovereign debt crisis. We have no way to pay our loans back. And pretty soon, people that are holding U.S. Treasury bonds all over the world, whether it is foreign governments right? Foreign businesses, foreign entities, foreign investors, they are going to realize that the United States is never going to repay their debts. We're either going to default on those loans, honestly, by saying we can't pay them. And the people that are holding U.S. treasuries are only going to get pennies on the dollar for their U.S. treasuries. Or we are going to default on our debts dishonestly by creating massive inflation, much more than what we have now, to print money to pay the bondholders and make them whole. The problem is if we do that, the US dollars that the bondholders are gonna get will be next to worthless. And so either way, we are going to default on our loans. And again, foreigners are going to figure this out very soon and they are going to stop trading with us, right? Bond investors are gonna stop buying bonds and they're gonna buy other assets, which they're already doing by and large, but that's gonna to continue to happen even more so because people are going to realize that the U.S. government is insolvent. It is not a risk-free asset to hold U.S. Treasury bonds anymore. It's always been that way in theory, right? But that is no longer going to be the case. And so if the U.S. government can no longer borrow any money from investors in public markets, right, or from foreign investors or foreign governments, right, if, if, they can't raise tax revenue because we still have so many people that are unemployed that are not paying income taxes, right? If they can't raise any other uh, tax revenue from any other sources, which they can't, then that means that they have to stop spending, right? But how is their economy going to continue to function if the government stops spending money, right? If there's no longer unemployment benefits or money there for Social Security or Medicaid or to give raises to government workers or to even employ government workers in the first place, right? This is going to be a massive problem that is not going to happen down the road like Jerome Powell wants to suggest it is. This is right around the corner. We are getting so close to the sovereign debt crisis here that it could happen any day or any month. And so it is important to understand that the US economy is in a huge bubble. And again, I've said this many times before, but it is so completely obvious because the entire US economy, as it is completely unproductive, revolves around government spending and consumer spending and consumers and government's abilities to be able to continue to borrow more and more money. But again, 
people are stretching the limits here. The government is completely stretching the limit. People's ability to continue to borrow more and more money is going to run out. And there are going to be a lot of defaults in the economy from individuals, from businesses, from corporations, and from governments. We are at the end of a long-term debt cycle, and this is going to end in a catastrophe. But as I mentioned, Americans continue to swipe the credit card at the grocery store, at the department store, where have you, right? They're spending borrowed money all over the place. And this is no more evident than in the earnings released today from American Express. American Express earnings spiked 866% to $2.80 per share, up 33% to $10.24 billion. So if we have such a strong economy, why is it that the consumer has to borrow so much money to where American Express's revenues can increase by 866%? Americans clearly are stretching here, right? As the stimulus money that has gone out in the last few stimulus payments continues to wear off for Americans, the average American continues to stretch to try and make ends meet because their income is not coming anywhere close to keeping up with inflation. If you earn $65,000 per year this year, if you're going to get a raise next year that is going to keep up with inflation, that means you're going to have to ask for an 8% increase in your wages, which would be a $5,200 increase in your wage just to keep up with the cost of living from the massive inflation that's going on right now which again is only at 8% as measured by the CPI, but going to go much, much higher over the next few years. So Americans are continuing to stretch to try and make ends meet by going into more and more credit card debt, as evidenced in the American Express earnings, as well as the $950 billion credit card debt throughout the US economy. But again, like the housing crisis in 2008, right? So much of the economy in 2008 was dependent on consumer spending and by the consumer's ability to continue to borrow more and more money against their home, taking out equity lines of credit, credit card debt, right? The same is true today because we don't have a productive economy. People's wages are not keeping up with inflation and the average American has to continue to stretch to try and make ends meet. But what happens once the American consumer runs out of the ability to borrow more and more money? Now, the Fed is trying to, again, kick this down the road by continuing to print more money and make more and more credit in the economy, more and more liquidity so that lenders can lend out more and more money. But again, that can't continue to happen, right? If investors no longer want to allow that to happen in foreign markets. Because if you hold U.S. Treasuries, right, or you're thinking of accepting U.S. Treasuries as payment, yet you see the dollar being devalued every day from massive money printing from the Fed's printer, you're not going to continue to accept U.S. Treasury bonds. In fact, you may start to sell them onto the market. But this is not going to go on for very much longer. We are very clearly at the top of a bubble here. Now, some of the other earnings that came out today... Two notable names, Snapchat 
which was up over 23% on the day. Now, this is the second quarter in a row after an earnings report that Snap was up huge after the earnings were released. But Snapchat released earnings of $171 million for the quarter for Q2. And it has now a valuation of $98.9 billion. Twitter, on the other hand, released earnings today of $65.6 million for Q2. And they have a valuation of $55.5 billion. Now, one of the companies that I've actually covered on this podcast before, Newmont Mining, also released earnings this week. Newmont Mining, as compared to Snapchat, right? Snapchat, $171 million of earnings and Twitter, $65.6 billion of earnings. Newmont Mining reported $650 million of earnings net income for the quarter. And they have a valuation of $48.2 billion. So a company that produces $650 million of profits in a quarter gets a valuation of $48 billion when this company, Snapchat, produces a sixth of that earnings potential in $171 million, yet gets a valuation twice as high of $98.9 billion. So if this doesn't show you that the U.S. stock market is in a bubble, and again, these are only a few names here, right? So it's hard to just take a few names, but you can find companies all over the place that are earning no money or earning next to nothing, right? Compared to value stocks like Newmont Mining, that is a huge cash cow. But you have skyrocket valuations all over the place for companies that earn no money or very little money right, that pay no dividends. Snapchat and Twitter both pay no dividends because they don't have any history of earnings. These both were actually the first two earnings reports for Snapchat the past two quarters where they've reported earnings. Twitter has reported earnings in the past, but very, very little earnings, and they're barely break being, they're barely doing better than breaking even in their business. Newmont Mining is a business that produces profits quarter after quarter for the last several years and for the last several decades that is the fact here yet and they pay a 3.65% dividend that they can return money to shareholders because they're such a productive vi- business yet you have businesses that are very unproductive that can't return any capital to investors because they don't have any capital to return to investors yet they continue to operate and get huge valuations right Everyone's buying the growth stocks, right? Because the Fed continues to run the printing press, which sends growth stock valuations higher and higher. And it it sends them into clear bubble territory. But the U.S. stock market is clearly in a huge bubble. As I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, the S&P 500 is up 17% year to date. Yet we have 61 million unemployed Americans. We have 419,000 Americans applying for initial jobless claims. We have $80 billion a month trade deficits. We have Congress about to default on their debt if they can't raise the debt ceiling in a vote by August 2nd. Yet the stock market continues to rise every single day. And stock markets all over the world, 
and value stocks in foreign nations are barely even getting bought here. But this, again, is a sign of a huge bubble, right? Gold, again, continues to fail to rally above 1815. We closed the week at 1802. It held its price well, but again, it's not rallying. But the reason that gold is not rallying is because it is a hedge against inflation and the markets don't believe we're going to have more inflation after the next few months, but also because gold is real money, right? Gold is the only thing in the markets right now that's not in a huge bubble. We have the stock market in a huge bubble. We have the real estate market in a huge bubble. And I'm going to talk more about the real estate market in a separate podcast tomorrow. But the the average price of homes is almost double what, what it was at the peak of the housing bubble in 2007. Yet wages are stagnant and people are are not earning any more money significantly than what they were in 2007. So clearly, if even if you make the case we're not in the housing bubble because they're not the same factors in the housing market this time, clearly we're not at, at a place where prices are cheap or getting any cheaper, right? But the housing market is another place where inflation continues to rear its ugly head. But again, how can you have valuations of companies that are just now starting to get minuscule earnings, right? Like a Twitter with $65 million of earnings in Q2 and a $55.5 billion valuation versus Newmont mining $650 million earnings in Q2 with only a 48.2 billion valuation. This is completely insane. The markets are completely ridiculous here. And as I said, People are refusing to buy the value stocks because the growth names are up 10, 15, 20% seemingly every day or every other day. So people want to continue to buy those stocks and buy into the momentum. But again, this is going to last until it doesn't, right? At some point, this bubble is going to pop and the value stocks are going to be the stocks that get bid up and get bought. And as far as I'm concerned, any weakness in value stocks, especially value stocks, overseas and emerging markets need to be bought here. You need to get out of the US dollar, start buying stocks in countries where the valuations are not sky high, but where the countries are actually productive, right? The underlying economies for the indices, right? Like in China are actually productive and where they're actually working to create wealth. So again, we are in a huge bubble but I just want to go a little bit further into Newmont Mining's earnings because, again, this is a company that I've been beating the table on. Uh, this is a this is the biggest gold mining pr producer in the world. They have an incredibly healthy balance sheet. Their earnings continue to soar. They hit earnings every single time they report every quarter. They have great management, but they are going to benefit immensely from the huge rise in gold that is coming from this inflationary storm. So anyway, as I mentioned, they had $650 million of net earnings for Q2. They're currently valued at $48.2 billion. Uh, the stock was down about 1% today after the earnings release. You had some profit taking there. And also gold had a weak day today. So that also caused some of the selling for Newmont Mining. But their earnings are up 157% 
from Q2 last year. So Q2 last year, they reported earnings of 261 million. And Q2 this year, they report earnings of 650 million. 157% increase in net earnings year over year. That is extreme growth. And again, this is the company that has a history of earnings. It's not like they had last year where they didn't have any earnings or they were earning very little money, right? They were already earning a ton of money last year, and now they're continuing to grow at extreme rates here. And again, as I said, they have a very healthy balance sheet. They're not over leveraged, right? If you look at the balance sheet, their total assets, uh, if you look at the year ending 2020, they had over $41 billion of assets and only $17 billion of liabilities. So they are a very under leveraged company. They run their business in a very disciplined way. I've mentioned it before, but they run their business for a $1,200 gold price. So all of their pricing models for how they run their mines, which include their operational costs of running the mines, their fixed overhead, and all of the overhead business expenses in general, they have an all-in cost to produce one ounce of gold for $1,200 an ounce. As I just mentioned, gold closed the day at $1,802 an ounce which would be a 50% margin for their product. And it's going to continue to grow. I expect gold is going to break 2000 this year at least, but two to three years from now, we could be looking at three, four or $5,000 per ounce gold prices, which would increase their margins exponentially. But again, this company, even if you don't believe the gold price is going to continue to rise, is already earning so much money off of their 50% margins and their healthy balance sheets. And they have a portfolio of mines all over the world. They're located in four different continents. They have the biggest mine in the world in Penasquito in Mexico. And their all-in cost of gold there is $800 per one ounce, right? They have economies of scale. They are able to continue to lower their costs, right? And they are benefiting from this past year, from lower oil prices, which have increased their margins even more dramatically. Now, yes, oil prices are probably going to continue to rise. And so their operating expenses are probably going to rise slightly. And as we have massive inflation, their labor costs are going to go up as well, just as all other businesses, operational costs are going to go up. But nonetheless, those operational costs are not going to keep up with the price of gold as we have a hyperinflation scenario in the United States. But this is a company with extreme growth potential. It's only selling right now at 18 times earnings, which is extremely cheap compared to a lot of US companies. And it's in the S&P 500 and the dividend yield is 3.65% compared to an average dividend yield of 1.7% in the S&P 500. So they're very, very competitive amongst their peers. They were the third best performing company in the S&P 500 in 2018 with gold prices at $1,200 an ounce, right? So yes, they're not performing with the S&P 500 index now because all of the other companies in the S&P 500 index are in bubbles, right? But they are going to eventually outperform all these companies because their earnings are outperforming all these other companies. Right. If, if you look at all the other companies in the S&P 500, they all have very, very small earnings or moderate earnings. 
right? But they are all in bubble territory and they're all getting higher valuations than this cash cow of a company that is producing $650 million of net earnings per quarter. So that's 2.4 to $2.5 billion of earnings per year. Again, this company is a huge cash cow, but people continue to ignore the fundamentals and just chase momentum into growth stocks because we are in a huge stock market bubble. And if the earnings of Snapchat, Twitter, and American Express don't tell you that, I don't know what will. And if that those don't tell you that, and the underlying problems in the U.S. economy, such as our twin deficits continuing to rise, or consumer credit continuing to skyrocket, or the fact that Congress can't pay its bills, if none of that tells you that we're in a stock market bubble, I don't know what will. Anyway, that's going to bring me to the last portion of the podcast. Um, the other th- big thing in uh, the news this week was Jeff Bezos and his trip to space. And he finally made his first trip to space with Blue Origin. And I want to cover this because there's a lot of hate going around for Jeff Bezos right now. And a lot of it's coming from Congress, but a lot of it is bipartisan. It's coming from both Republicans and Democrats, both in Congress as well as in the mainstream. Now, a lot of this has to do with uh, the idea that people are, are, they have a problem with Jeff Bezos spending his money and putting his resources into developing a space tourism company. And instead they think he should be solving other problems going on throughout the world. Other people like Elizabeth Warren Warren are pounding the table saying that he needs to pay more taxes. The wealthy in general need to pay more taxes, right? And a lot of people, there was a petition going around, which is some sort of a joke saying that Jeff Bezos should stay in space. It got a ton of support, right? But so many people hate Jeff Bezos right now because of how wealthy he is and how he's choosing to spend the money that he's accumulated over the course of his life. And I mentioned this on in a Twitter post the other day, but if all of this hate for Jeff Bezos doesn't show you that capitalism in America is dying, I don't know what will. See, Jeff Bezos, if you take into account between him and his ex-wife, Mackenzie Bezos, before their divorce, Jeff Bezos is worth about $250 billion. Now, if you look at the market cap, the valuation of Amazon today, Amazon is valued at a $1.8 trillion company. And Jeff Bezos currently owns 16% of Amazon. So Jeff Bezos has accumulated $250 billion worth of wealth, which means that he has created $1.75 trillion worth of wealth for other people, right? Because Amazon's worth $1.8 trillion, yet he only owns 16% of it. So the other 84% of Amazon is wealth that he has created for other people. When you also take into account the fact that he has created jobs for millions of people. Amazon has created over a million jobs over the course of its lifetime. And they currently employ over 500,000 people in the United States. 
And a lot of people, one of the problems they have with Jeff Bezos is they say he is a greedy, rich pig who does not pay his employees properly and has his employees working under extremely strenuous conditions. And he needs to pay his employees more rather than worry about going to space. And uh, this is a complete fallacy. First of all, people make rational decisions. If a person doesn't like working for Amazon, they have the choice to leave. So if a person continues to stay at Amazon and work there, they are choosing to do so because they feel they're getting a better deal there than they could get with any other employer in their vicinity, right? So people make rational decisions. And so if people stay at Amazon, even though the conditions, the working conditions may be strenuous and stressful, they believe that their compensation is high enough to, to uh, justify that strenuous work environment. But Anyway, I looked up the, the average median hourly wage in America, and the median being half of the people earn below it and half of the people earn above it. The, hour, the average hourly median wage in America in 2021 is $29.35 per hour, and that includes both skilled and unskilled workers. So half of the workers in the workforce force that earn hourly wages earn less than $29 and half of them earn more than $29. And most state minimum wages are at 10, 11 or $12 per hour. And even the highest state minimum wages like the California uh, minimum wage, New York, New Jersey are at 13 or $14 an hour. Now Amazon offers $15 an hour minimum wage to anybody who's starting within the company day one. And you get health care on day one as you start an Amazon. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter if you work in a co corporate office, if you're working in a warehouse, you're a frontline worker. All Amazon employees get health care from day one. Now, most companies, even if you receive health care from that company, you have to wait until your 90th day of employment before you receive health care. That's not the case in Amazon. You receive health care on day one, plus $15 an hour at a minimum. In some cases, you make more, right? But this is better than what the law is actually saying businesses have to pay, right? But again, Amazon pays $15 an hour to start, but many people that work there on the front lines make more money than that, right? But they actually make more money. The average unskilled laborer at Amazon makes way more money than the average unskilled laborer does anywhere else. So they pay higher wages than anybody else in the country for unskilled workers. Yet people are mad because he doesn't pay his workers more, but he actually pays his workers very well. And again, he gives healthcare on the first day. You can't find very many companies that provide healthcare to unskilled employees on the first day of the job, or even at all in some cases. But if you also look, the average Amazon worker gets a promotion after their first two years at the company. So once you get that promotion, you're now earning well over $15 an hour. But the average person who stays with Amazon for two years gets promoted. Some people get promoted faster than that, right? But the average worker at, America, at uh, Amazon is not making $15 an hour. They're making more than that. 
And again, that's already above the national average. And then the, the um, mid-level managers at Amazon make approximately $79,000 a year. So let's assume maybe it takes you five years in the company to move up from a frontline worker to a mid-level manager, which is reasonable for someone who might have some ambition. You're making $79,000 per year, plus you get healthcare, plus at that point now you're getting stock options, 401k benefits, right? You're getting a 401k match. You're getting tons of benefits here, right? Amazon also has programs where they help pay for tuition in some cases, but Amazon pays their workers extremely well. And again, they've created over a million jobs over the course of the company's life. And they currently employ over 500,000 people who all have health care, are getting paid more than the minimum wage and are getting paid well over the minimum wage in many cases. So Jeff Bezos actually treats his workers extremely well. Now, yes, the work conditions may be strenuous, but they are paying you for that. And if you don't like that, don't work there. Don't stay there if you don't like the work conditions. Go work somewhere else. But if a person works at Amazon, even though they don't like the working conditions, if they choose to stay there, that's because the marketplace and another employer is not giving that worker a better deal by definition because people make rational decisions. But... Think about what else Amazon has done, right? Jeff Bezos through Amazon has made the lives of millions of consumers better, right? Instead of having to go to the store to buy something, right? If you have to go to, to a store physically and buy something, that could take 40 minutes or an hour out of your life. You don't have to do that anymore. You can order it online within minutes and it shows up at your door the next day. It makes your life 10 times better gives you a huge convenience. It saves you a ton of time. So instead of spending that time going to the physical location to pick up whatever you need, it gets delivered to your house. That's time that you could be spending with your kids, time you could be spending working on your business or working on a hobby or just relaxing, whatever. But that makes millions of people's lives better, right? He's he's made millions of people's cons consumers' lives better, right? So when people are mad, that he has generated $250 billion of wealth for himself, right? Not to mention the fact that he's created over $1.7 trillion of wealth for other people and made consumers' lives much better. People are still upset with him because he wants to spend his money how he pleases. Now, again, yes, he went to space, but his company, Blue Origin, is innovating, right? They're creating innovations for the future. And he's creating a space tourism company that again is going to improve the lives of consumers. Now, yes, sure. Maybe you can only afford a ticket with Blue Origin if you're very wealthy. But nonetheless, that is still providing benefits for consumers. And again, this is a company that's innovating, creating jobs, right? And, and think about what he does with his money. He is a very charitable person. He donates tons of money to tons of causes, right? He's invested in many different startup companies to help other entrepreneurs get on their feet and get off the ground, right? And whatever wealth he does have, again, is concentrated in Amazon stock, right? He owns 16% of Amazon stock, 
which allows the company to have more access to capital so they can continue to grow, continue to get more efficient, continue to pay workers higher wages, right? And continue to develop low cost services so that millions of consumers benefit from their products and services. But he has done nothing but make America a better place. By He's provided millions of jobs. He has done so much for this country and people want to bash him because he wants to go to space and fulfill a childhood dream of his. This is completely ridiculous. And this is just a bunch of people that hate someone who is more successful than them and that are just envious of somebody because they have created something great with their lives. But again, in capitalism, people like Jeff Bezos can only become extremely rich if they enrich the lives of everybody else around them, right? The Jeff Bezos, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Bill Gates of the world have all enriched the lives of millions of people. And that is how they became billionaires. But this just shows you all the hate for Jeff Bezos, not just from Democrats, but from Republicans as well, from all of Congress, from all of the people saying that he needs to pay more taxes, shows you that capitalism in America is dead. And not only that, but Jeff Bezos pays a ton of taxes. Now, yes, Amazon pays very little taxes because they've figured out how to use the laws that Congress put in place not to pay taxes. But Jeff Bezos himself pays a ton of taxes, right? Any corporate taxes charged to Amazon, which again is very little, is partly Jeff Bezos paying those taxes because he's a shareholder of Amazon. He also pays income taxes at any salary he takes from Amazon. He also is going to pay estate taxes when he dies and passes his wealth on to his children. And the government's really going to get him there. there he's going to pay probably 40, 50, or 60% of his estate in taxes when he dies, right? He pays uh, all, all sorts of uh, luxury taxes when he buys luxury items, right? And again, there's probably going to be some sort of a wealth tax that Congress tries to implement. Who knows if that'll get passed? But Jeff Bezos pays tons of taxes. He pays a lot more taxes than the average American does. Yet again, he's contributed to the fabric of America much more than the average American. So he is being penalized for that by paying even higher taxes. But he doesn't need to pay higher taxes because the more money that Jeff Bezos gets to keep that belongs to him is going to be better allocated. I would much prefer Jeff Bezos to keep his $250 billion rather than Congress take it and squander it. Again, if Congress was such a great allocator of resources and of money, why can they never pay their debts and why do they have to continuously raise the debt ceiling? If they were a great allocator of money, they would be able to bring in enough tax revenue to pay for all of their spending, but they can't do that. So it shows you how irresponsible that Congress is with money. But Jeff Bezos is going to use his money if he gets to keep it to create new businesses like Blue Origin, right? Create new innovations, help other entrepreneurs get their startups off the ground to create businesses that improve the lives of everybody. His capital, his money is not sitting under a mattress. It is in Amazon stock and it is in other companies and it has helped making our economy more productive. Now, our economy as a whole is not productive at all. But to the point that we are productive, it's because we have entrepreneurs allocating capital in smart ways, not having congressmen allocate capital in ways that ruins 
our financial solvency. But anyway, we need to have, have entrepreneurs be celebrated. Blue Origin going to space should be something that is celebrated, right? Jeff Bezos creating a $1.8 trillion company that has improved the lives of millions and millions of people needs to be celebrated. But Jeff Bezos owes America nothing. America owns Jeff Bezos everything. 